good afternoon and welcome to a another episode of Read Me Something You Love. And we are in the offices of Rogers, Coleridge and White. Quite an amazing um, cent- central office. Um, Alexander, would you like to have a go at um, sort of just sketching out what's around us? Organised chaos is how this I This is the first it. time I've ever been in this room, <laughs> but I feel incredibly comfortable in it because it looks sort of like rooms that I work in. It's a, it's a place saturated in, in books and piles of paper and uh, coffee mugs and various significant... Uh, what they be called? Significant objects, even though I don't know their full significance, you can tell that somebody cares for these wonderful this wonderful array of stuff it's very uh crowded every object has a story and the 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 one object that i was introduced to when i walked in and met you was um ian McEwen's singing fish it's ian McEwen's singing fish yes it's it's <laughs> it's right by your elbow what is the full story of of McEwen's um singing Big Mouth Billy Bass. I'm, I'm not positive because I've just heard it the first time, but I hear that it was the opposite of a housewarming where a person has uh, moving into their new house and people bring them objects uh, to warm up their space. I think this was a house cooling, <laughs> which was uh, someone moving, Ian McCune moving out of his house, and uh, people would come and take away objects ah. that were uh, n- not to be transferred to the new house. And so somehow this singing big mouth Billy Bass was uh, dismissed and brought here to find a new aquarium in which to dwell. I don't know why, because, I mean, it's, it is such a wonderful object. It sings, don't worry, be happy. It moves its tail. And and I think it sings, splish, splash, I was taking a <laughs> bath as well. It's a literary icon, really. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't yet introduced Alexander. I'm here with uh, Alexander McLeod, who is on a whistle-stop, literally a whistle-stop tour of the UK, publicising a little bit his amazing short story collection, Light Lifting, uh, which I, I think is, well, one of the best debut short story collections I've read for a long, long time. And and unfortunately, I say unfortunately for me, this reading is going to be slightly compressed because the, the JC minders are ready to whisk you off. JC, by the way, is Jonathan Cape, not Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, JC minders. <laughs> I would not want to be whisked off. That would be different. Are about to whisk you off to the Guardian, which is a nice place to, to be whisked off to. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> Who knows? But um, on, on the hoof, literally, you have agreed, thank you so much, to do um, a reading of something you really, really love, and it was going to be between a Flannery and uh, Elizabeth Bishop. And we're going to go for Elizabeth Bishop. Great. So tell, tell me why Elizabeth Bishop and maybe also why this particular poem... Elizabeth Bishop, I feel, is destined... Elizabeth Bishop has already been recognized as uh, one of the great uh, American poets of the 20th century, but I feel quite confident that Elizabeth Bishop's reputation is going to grow through the 21st century because what happened to Elizabeth Bishop and the concerns that Elizabeth Bishop had throughout her life... uh, I think we're a, a bit ahead of a bit of ahead of their time. What Bishop was always interested in, because she had a, uh, we won't go into the full family history, 
but she was always dislocated. So she was always never living uh, at home. She she was fascinated by the idea of of travel, and so she lived in kind of two or three. I would definitely say three um, important sites. One of them being kind of cold New England, uh, Brazil, and she was often uh, crossing crossing international and national borders. Mm. So. Um, Many of her poems are interested in how um, how foreignness is to be negotiated within the self and the other. The, mm. the separateness uh, separateness of consciousness is something she's very interested in yeah. in the imagination. And that dis- it's it's that word dislocation is so central, isn't it, to this poem that you're going to read? But it's interesting that this dislocation happens almost entirely in her head. That's what's so amazing about um, it. Yeah. This poem is called In the Waiting Room, and when I think of it, uh, I'm, I think it's another one of those bishop moments of genius where an amazing thing happens in the waiting room, and the waiting room is supposedly the room that's beside the place where the thing happens. You know, you just mm-hmm. the waiting room is supposed to be just this place where uh, we kind of sit in attendance for the great event which is going to happen on the other side of the door but she's very interested in the way this girl as you'll see sitting in this in this place and she's just gone to attend the appointment it's not even her appointment so she's mm. she's not even waiting she's waiting for someone uh who has already gone through mm. so mm. the waiting is very important for her and the location uh and the timing and all of it is very significant great well shall we go straight to the sure home sure So I'm going to do my best with this. Uh, In the Waiting Room by Elizabeth Bishop. In Worcester, Massachusetts, I went with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist's appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter. It got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown-up people, arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines, My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time, and while I waited and read the National Geographic, I could read and carefully studied the photographs, the inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Asa and Martin Johnson, dressed in riding breeches, laced boots, pith helmets, a dead man slung on a pole, long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black, naked women with necks wound round and round with wire like the necks of light bulbs. Their breasts were horrifying. I read it right straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date. Suddenly, from inside came an O of pain. And Consuelo's voice, not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I was my foolish aunt. I, we, were falling Falling, our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 
1918. I said to myself, three days and you'll be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold, blue, black space. But I felt, you are an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. I gave a sidelong glance. I couldn't look any higher at shadowy gray knees, trousers, and skirts, and boots, and different pairs of hands lying under the lamps. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened, that nothing stranger could ever happen. Why should I be my aunt, or me, or anyone? What similarities, boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat, or even the National Geographic and those awful hanging breasts held us all together or made us all just one? How, I didn't know any other word for it, how unlikely. How had I come to be here like them and overhear a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse, but hadn't? The waiting room was bright and too hot. It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another and another, and then I was back in it. The war was on. Outside in Worcester, Massachusetts were night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. Wow, thank you. Now that was a very interesting reading, because when I, when I read it to myself and I got to that point where she has what feels like, what seems to be this sort of overwhelming panic attack, the sense of, of existential anxiety that kind of just drags her away. Mm-hmm. I read it as that and I read it as, as terror. Mm-hmm. But when you read it, you read that as seemed more like an assertion. Yes. Is that how you I've see read, that, that central, um, sort of that core of the poem? There's never panic in Elizabeth Bishop. Mm-hmm. So Bishop is seen in American poetics as sort of the antithesis of the confessional poets, though she had this great and tragic and long and multifaceted relationship with Robert Lowell. Um, Bishop is almost always taking, as she says there, that O of pain. Right? She says, this is an O of pain, and it could have gotten worse, but it didn't. The O is recognition. It's not panic. It's a, it's, it's, it is a, she says, you know, I, how unlikely. Mm. How unlikely this thing that I would suddenly realize this about myself, that and and everything about the poem, it's it's a very artful poem because those images and that National Geographic don't exist. Bishop made them up. Like she she made up the exact sequence of images that she wanted this child mm-hmm. to see the way that the wire works, the way the breasts work, the way the bodies, the the you know the bodies in their gray trousers and the lamps, 
the boredom of the waiting room and the juxtaposition of the National Geographic and the mm. war and slush. Like it's 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 all in there. But for Bishop, it's it is literally taking it all in, like mm-hmm. taking it all in. And so my favorite part of the poem by far is uh, is this moment when the consciousness strikes on this amazing insight but it doesn't have the vocabulary to hit it i we were falling falling our eyes glued to the cover of the national geographic february 1918 i said to myself three days and you'll be seven years old I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold, blue, black space. But I felt, you are an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? So if you go back to those lines, and I'd say it's amazing, like they're only one-syllable words, but I felt you are an I. You are an Elizabeth. Hmm. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. And and that, like, I scarcely dared look to see what it was I was. That is Bishop, like, to the core, in that the insight is there, and the language is so precisely controlled that you don't need you don't need big words to do to do it. Uh, it's a very sophisticated poem. Mm. I mean, it's interesting you say that that O is a recognition, but that O, it, certainly the way it's presented mm-hmm. here, is also she originally thinks, yes. initially thinks, Aunt Consuelo's voice, yes. and so you do actually have you do have two characters. I mean, you you know, you could talk about it as, okay, this is Bishop's poetics, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But Mm -hmm. you also do have these two characters and you have one character taking a particular stance to another character. Yes. um, Quite a cruel stance. And then I knew, even then I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I mean, that's quite a cruel thing to say about um, your your aunt aunt who's being tortured in the other room by the dentist, isn't it? Well, it's... (laughs) Again, that's uh, the other part of Bishop too. Is the kind of uh, the gossipy, uh, gossipy wisdom that's in her poems an awful lot. One of her one of her famous poems, "The Moose," has a has a uh, two old ladies talking in the back of a bus, and they're just they're just doing exactly that. They're just gossiping about people who have had tragedies, and there's a moment where they say yes. But the yes is inhaled. She's very interested in that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the yes, like the sucked in yes, which is sort of a, a big, a big uh, idea for her that, that we recognize these things. Like the ant, the, the O of pain is not coming from Aunt Consuelo at that moment. No. But she thinks, oh, Aunt Consuelo is the kind of person who screams at the dentist's office, mm. uh, even at that age. So she does have that kind of gossipy. I, I can and quite see, a cold yes, gaze, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's quite oh, a cold one. Oh, that's that is uh, that is it. Yeah, the the aesthetic is very cold. It's very cold, and and uh, uh, it's famously famously dramatized in American poetics because Skunk Hour, Lowell Skunk Hour, which is seen as the poem that ushers in this pain, is dedicated to Bishop. 
Robert Lowell wrote it for Bishop, and then Bishop wrote response poem to him called the Armadillo, which is mm, like, mm. which is like, okay. You know, uh, they were always debating about the the the, the hot and the cold, mm. and she was always on the side of the cold. Mm. But I would I would sort of take I think I would be taking Lowell's side here in mm-hmm. that debate and saying that the way okay the way you read it you read it perhaps as Bishop would read it but mm-hmm. but I think she she is whether she wants to or not expressing something very very fragile and very destabilized here mm-hmm. yeah, a, de- a moment in which she's awfully destabilized and terrified yes I would the, the I would black also wave. say yes yeah. yes I. I think that that insight, that it's a it's a tremendous insight, right? That the strange includes me, mm. like uh, that I am strange, uh, or that either I am strange or we are all, you know, included in the strange uh, together. Mm-hmm. That is literally a mind blowing thing, mm. and I think you're right that that it it does seem painful, but it also has. It, I think there's. Even in what you might see as coldness, I see incredible tenderness in it. I see incredible, uh, incredible uh, kind of calm wisdom growing in that girl. Like we, that's what we see. The panic is definitely there because you're confronted with something. But it's sort of like when you're confronted with something that it, that is maybe an assault on you, but you're so clearly aware that it's true, right? Yeah. So when you're confronted with change, that's that's traumatic but when you're confronted with truth Mm -hmm. like it's traumatic but then there's no no other way but to accept it and so um so it's it's a it's a it's a a comforting trauma i guess like the trauma is definitely there but she's different she's different on the other side of it she she reads the world differently you know um Mm -hmm. or sees herself differently but uh but i think even the way we do read it differently points to uh how well done it is that you can see it either as a an angry sort of sad poem or you can see it as a wise uh, mm. a wise cold poem mm. Yeah. Mm. i mean that truth she talks about that sensation of you are an i you are an elizabeth you are one of them and then what, I suppose the implicit question as well of well what, what what is an I what is an Elizabeth what is one of them mm-hmm. um, as well could could you pinpoint when that truth became available to you? Well, uh, I think kind of everybody has the moment where you're, you you realize that you just don't live only in your house you live outside your house and I definitely remember. Uh, Go, even just going to visit friends' houses and seeing how their houses were different from mine. And then my family uh, lived in two very different parts of Canada. One, a very industrial um, uh, car plant world, and another, uh, you know, an, an, a rural world, but not uh, a lucrative agricultural world, a kind of, I was just up in the highlands, a landscape like that. Like, this land is not going to yield... Uh, massive wealth and and I definitely remembered thinking that the issues that were most important to my cousins and my relatives who lived in Nova Scotia were not even on the radar of the people who lived in 
in Windsor and that the people who lived in Windsor wouldn't care about the things that the people in Nova Scotia cared about. And because we were moving back and forth across that world all the time as a family, we were always, I think, remaking ourselves, uh, or not remaking, but adjusting to different conditions and meeting people who cared about things or lived in entirely different ways. So I think that was probably presented to me very, very early on. Uh, but it was never explained. It was just something you you dwelt it, it kind of went into difference, like like profound difference. Uh, that that's that's always something for kids when they see that the first time. And the first time that happens, do you think you imagine you would have felt that some kind of dislocation, some kind of destabilization? Well, it's again when you're confronted with uh, like profound. It has to be a profound difference. Like I remember my my uh, my son. Uh, the first time he met uh, uh, Asian people. <laughs> he didn't know a lot of black people, and he didn't know a lot of white people, but he never met Asian people. And, and, uh, and so he would ask the kind of questions that kids ask. Where do they come from, or where do they live? And, and, and uh, you find yourself saying, oh, there are billions and billions of Asian people. Uh, they're just not in... Uh, your daycare right now like you only know seven people <laughs> you only know seven people right now so you imagine those are all the people to know so i remember talking about this with my with my children saying like just gesturing towards a massive world that is outside of the daycare uh and a child is just stumbling on it as a it's big news where i live it's big news where i live an asian person's in the daycare uh and it's the hint like for him it's just a clue and I'm saying, guess what? When you open that door, <laughs> when you open that door, when you open that door, this hint is going to lead you to truth. Yeah. And that's kind of uh, uh-huh. what Bishop is in her room. Like, yeah. and again, it's it's so important about National Geographic, like uh, because National Geographic is a magazine which I guess advertises itself as if bringing us the world. But what I was always interested in is the subscribers to National Geographic are all, you know, educated white people who live mm-hmm. in the northeastern United States, pretty much. So the photographers and the journalists may go to the Congo, but the magazine goes to Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I was interested in the way Bishop would see herself inside those yellow borders. Mm-hmm. Like, what would National Geographic look like if it was doing an expose on mm-hmm. Worcester, Massachusetts? Uh, so I am foreign, like that. That uh, anyway, that that reflection just seems so important to me. Well, we are we are all foreign to each other until until we become familiarized, mm-hmm. aren't we? You mm-hmm. know, um, and it's a big challenge. I think we're foreign to ourselves. I know I'm yeah. foreign to myself. Yeah. I think. Mm. One story that I, th- I was thinking about when reading this poem in your collection was the loop mm-hmm. and how. Uh, you have this again a, a, a young boy I mean he's sort of I don't know how old is he he's sort of 12. Tw- 12 years old and he comes up against something that is just some of the sort of the shockingly visceral facts of life and in this case death and it's too much for him I mean the story ends I, I love the way it ends because it ends with him sort of saying him saying, you know I've, I've seen too much yeah. I want to go back and be a kid I want to yeah. do he has a that- line there where he says it, my plan now is to go and be exactly my own age yes. I'm going to be as old as I am that's my goal and that's a hard goal to pull off sometimes yeah. but, but he's very, obviously a very different child and it's a very different person to the 
to the bishop character because it's I get the feeling with the bishop that she's seen all of this and then she, and, she, and she's taken it in and she she kind of wants more whereas hmm. your character felt I felt was was destabilized and then sort of knocked off kilter a little bit by this whole event well one of the things in my book that I was really trying to get at was the consequences of action whereas this is the consequences of thought right like the, everything that goes on in the waiting room goes on between little Elizabeth's ears but my guy gets literally led right up to the threshold in this case it's a doorway it is literally a doorway and he knows he knows because he's made rules this is a, a character that that is seen as a threat we never know that he's a threat but he's seen as a menace in the neighborhood and so he's made rules that children do not go in that house that house is a bad place for a child to go and then he is brought up to the threshold and circumstances require not a thought not a reflection on it but an action and so there's a moment there when he steps across the threshold he is another person like he knows that the consequences of this are going to stick around for a while so when he has that thought it's just like five minutes after it's happened like five minutes after he's had to do a fairly a fairly gruesome thing a fairly gruesome yeah. thing but as he says there was no way around this like there was no way around this you couldn't turn away from it and and walk away and and go and take the other option so he makes a step in the book i say like he says this step is like stepping out of an airplane like you're not in the same element anymore um and then he puts himself through a set of actions but i think you're right that that the two are connected in that earlier in the story he's just helping out old ladies and it's a little easier uh but he sees himself he imagines himself and he says there may be a time when i can't close the drapes there might be a time when i can't hold a glass of milk like imagine uh but he mm. sees it and uh yeah, so he sees himself plugged into those old ladies and plugged into that guy on the floor mm. in a similar way. I think mm. you're right. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. Except that for him, it requires doing. And yeah. doing can't have any ambiguity. Like, you're either doing it or you're not. Mm. Well, we've only really, I feel, sort of been taken to the the threshold of, of this poem. I, I feel we could, if we had the time, we could sit and, and kind of wallow in it mm -hmm. um for a whole afternoon that would be wonderful but i would like the chance but, <laughs> but i appreciate you but appreciate the jc the jc minders have come can, you can hear the chains <laughs> <laughs> jacob marley <laughs> yes. um and so poems yet to come yes <laughs> but thank you so much for reading this and for um just talking about the poem and it's it's been it's been great i really appreciate the it's opportunity been really great thank really you appreciate the opportunity cheers cheers